This is no small part. No small part. No small part. This is no small parts. I am Brittany Brewer. So tell me about this talkback that you're having tonight. All right. So, uh, yeah, it starts at five uh, and we're going to be uh, answering questions from our audience. We've been uh, releasing um, the videos of each act uh, every night this week, starting Thursday. We've been talking about like a mini series. Yeah, I saw Um, that. Super cool. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. Uh, And so we're having a talk back tonight uh, after we release the final act on Sunday. That's going to talk about the process and how to make theater and art during quarantine, things like that. This is Brendan Dahl. I'm going to try and be concise because I know you're you're probably going to have to jump off at like five till, ten till. Yeah, five till is fine. Cool. I'll keep an eye on the eye on the clock. But uh, appreciate it. He is a theater artist and producer from Philadelphia. They have worked as a writer, actor and dramaturg with theater companies in Philadelphia and New York. Tell me about what you're drinking right now, Brendan. Well, right now I am drinking a coconut LaCroix. <laughs> Is that good? So, yeah, it's a brand. It's a brand of seltzer water. Yes, I think it's. I think it's very good. Um, though actually, I do have to say, I think I prefer the Waterloo brand over the Lacroix brand uh, in general. But the coconut Lacroix is quite good. Is that like an English brand? That's probably like a silly question. But is the Waterloo brand an English brand? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, Waterloo. In the, st- in the same way that LaCroix may or may not actually be French. I have no idea. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair. I am drinking a Passion Tango iced tea. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like a Starbucks drink. I think it is a little bit. I mean, they definitely have one. Starbucks has like an iced Passion Tango tea, um, <laughs> which was the gateway for me getting this like grocery brand iced <laughs> tea. Got it. You gotta make it. We gotta make it work any way you can. Getting that fake sweet and well, it's not that like nice sweet and tartness without like adding a bunch of sugar is is very nice. On today's episode of No Small Parts, Brendan talks about his transition to producing play readings virtually, making the most of relationships with organizations, and the value in reaching out and sending an email. Cheers. Um. So, tell me about it. What was your gateway into theater? Ooh, that's a good question. So um, I started in theater really when I was in third grade uh, because I had a very theatrical third grade teacher uh, who used to hold plays with her classes. Um, I remember the first play I was ever really in or that I can remember was a play called The Turkeys Go on Strike, (laughs) uh, a Thanksgiving-style play. Um, And I got cast as a TV reporter, which served as a narrator uh, for the play. And I had a lot of fun with it. And um, yeah, and then later that same year, we did uh, another play called Munchkin Mediation, which was uh, essentially a <laughs> the munchkins of the Wizard of Oz world um, using conflict resolution techniques to de-escalate conflict. <laughs> <laughs> that is so um, cute. And, yeah, it was, it was very fun. We all had our costumes and our red and, red and black striped tights and everything. Um, but yeah, so so that um, I think then and then uh, I, I started doing some shows at um, MacGuffin Theater and Film. Started taking improv classes there first, uh, and then I started doing some shows. Um, one of my friends from uh, GFS went to school, convinced me to try out for the musical, um, and I really loved it. 
And so, yeah, I, I started acting and then really starting uh, like eighth grade freshman year um, at GFS, we have this uh, J term, which is essentially a month off of regular classes where we do elective courses. Yes, Super yeah. cool. And so I took a J term class on playwriting because okay. I was like, oh, I've always been in, into creative writing and I've, you know, I love acting and theater and improv. Why not? And then I, I really loved it. Started working with Phil Young Playwrights, met Brittany through that class. And, uh... I met Brendan when he was a freshman and I was a staff member at Philadelphia Young Playwrights. Yeah. And, and uh, since then, I've been uh, I've been doing all sorts of, of things and acting and playwriting and dabbling and directing a little bit. And, yeah, it's so awesome. Um Acting is, I feel like it's a frequent gateway for most of us, but still it sounds like super early you were diving into directing, you were diving into some writing. When did you begin working with and through MacGuffin? Was that, it sounds like that may have been middle school based on what you were talking through. Yeah, so um, I believe my first play at MacGuffin was uh, the fall of sixth grade. So starting middle school, yeah. Okay, awesome. So for you, when did you realize that producing work was something you were interested in or something you could get involved in? Yeah, I think for me, um, as I was getting really into playwriting, I realized that uh, the opportunities to produce your play, have readings, um, while I, I was very lucky to have a lot of those opportunities through uh, Germantown Friends and Philly Young Playwrights, I realized that that's not something that is, you know, handed to you on a silver platter. And so I started realizing that if I want to produce my work, hear my work out loud, um, it was something that was reasonable and I had the ability to go out and do myself. That's awesome. Would you tell me about sort of your first experience dabbling in producing? Yeah, I think um, I would probably say my my first experience, honestly, was um, last fall uh, when I ha had a uh, reading for my play, The Glenonite Colonists, um, and I had this reading at, uh, at MacGuffin Theatre and Film using their space, um, and I got a lot of the actors that I was uh, working with at MacGuffin to do readings in it, and actually also... Um, reached out to Michael Stoller, who had been acting, acted in my production at Temple for the New Voices Festival. Yeah. Um, and so I got, got everyone together, just sent them an email and said, hey, here are the dates, can you be a part of it? Um, and we made it happen, and we had a really great turnout, and uh, it was really successful. I learned a lot about the play. That's awesome. And MacGuffin was able to provide space for that? Yes. Um, yeah, MacGuffin was, was really excited about um, having student play reading because they'd never had uh, anything like that before. And so they were uh, extremely generous to give me the space for a night. I, I reached out to them at the end of the summer and said, this is something I want to do in the fall um, and had email correspondence with uh, John Ray, who's the artistic director there. Mm -hmm. um, and he gave me a couple of nights that they could do it. If you are interested in producing a reading, think about the connections you already have who might have access to space your school, a community center, a youth group organization. Consider what the goal of your reading is and what kind of space may support that goal. And yeah, we, we brought we brought in a bunch of food and had refreshments and it actually I think served as um, good a good publicity event for MacGuffin too because a lot of the people that we got to show up to the reading were people who might otherwise not come to MacGuffin um, and you know they were able to plug their regular season too. Space traits can be mutually beneficial. 
If you think a connection might benefit from hosting your reading, it is worthwhile to share how when reaching out to them. I think as, as, as generous as it was to me, I hope they got something out of it too. Yeah, and that's smart. It's such a big deal, um, the benefits of space trading, especially when you can bring in a new audience group yeah, to expose them to what folks who work at the space may already be creating. Right. But you were also, so so you sourced actors based on your previous relationships. You did, I'm guessing, a little bit of marketing. Yeah, I, I sent out basically just a massive email blast um, to teachers and uh, teaching artists I'd worked with and actors and family, family friends. And then I encouraged all the actors involved to do the same, um, had an Evite RSVP list. Um, of course, it was, it was all free and, and it was free food. So <laughs> a lot of the college students that were friends with Michael, that was one of our biggest draws where all the college students there oh, were yeah. free food. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, were you, you might have already said this. Did you direct this? performance yeah it, it was a very much a um a reading of an early draft and so we had uh one rehearsal um in the space and then a couple of uh like calls talking about what we were going to do and then of course like for the hour before we got there early and went through it but it was very minimal like not, not a lot of stage part of the stage reading like people stood up when they were speaking and sat down and that, and that was about the extent of that but um yeah, it was mostly just an emphasis on hearing what they did with the characters, hearing the play out loud for me, and then I had a um, piece of paper that we handed out to the audience where they could make notes and have comments during the play, and then we had a little talk-back feedback session at the end. If you are interested in hearing more about the goals of readings and staged readings, and how that might shift choices as a producer, Aaron talks more about this in episode three of No Small Parts. That was really helpful. That's really cool. That's really cool. And I know you've dabbled a little bit in producing some more since then, both, I think, a little bit physically, but also very much as we've moved virtual in the past several months. <laughs> Would yes. you talk um, about like your most memorable experience doing some work with producing? Yeah, so... Um Right now, uh, I'm really excited. We're just starting rehearsals this week um, for this virtual production of actually the the play I was just talking about, Glennonite Colonists. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, we're we are doing this over Zoom, much like the show I just the Shakespeare show I just did. Mm -hmm. um, and we're I'm using many of the actors from the reading. It's a quite different script now, and so I have some other characters, and some characters were cut, so we're moving and shifting around the cast a little bit, but a lot of the same actors are coming back. Readings can be a great opportunity to find, connect with, and practice work with potential future collaborators. If you are interested in hearing more about finding your community of art makers, Ange talks more about this in episode one of No Small Parts. And we're going to do a lot of really fun things with uh, how we're going to stage it in Zoom, uh, use a lot of virtual backgrounds and special effects to yes. kind of bring this science fiction world to life. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, I think I think one of the hardest things that I'm learning about doing virtual work like this is figuring mm -hmm. out how to monetize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think the plan right now is um, to release it as an unlisted YouTube video and have people... Um, pay $5 for the link and then have options for uh, donations to um, 
Phil Young playwrights, MacGuffin Theatre and Film, and uh, other actors and artists involved. So we can kind of spread the wealth of, of donations around and uh, have a just a base $5 entrance to get the link. That's but, really yeah. cool. We're, how, we're very excited about it. How long has um, this sort of like remount been turning around in your mind as far as producing it and making it happen? Yeah, I'd say I, um, I came up with the idea about three weeks ago. Um, as I was looking for things to do, ways to do make art in quarantine. Yes, um, yes. And we also, I'm in this uh, film class at Dermortown Friends School, and uh, our teacher was like, all right, our entire curriculum has changed. I now challenge <laughs> you to come up with some sort of massive, large-scale project that you're going to work on from now to the end of the year. And it, as long as it has something to do with film and editing, that's great, do it. And so I'm going to use that class and the guidance of the teacher there to mount this production and that's going to be my project so it sounds like um if that was a few weeks ago this may happen over the course of a month and a half yeah that's that's about right we are going to be recording um in the very uh end of may early june um and then depending on how fast i can edit it uh, I hope to release it sometime near uh, near the mid to end of June, probably end of June. And like I've I've definitely had the opportunity to see your skills in in video editing, which is cool. Oh, thank um, you. But definitely an unexpected challenge of producing a theatrical work is is yeah. teaching yourself even more and playing even more with video editing software. Absolutely. <laughs> it's really interesting that this form of like Zoom theater is not quite theater but not quite film because mm-hmm. both has the uh, the facet where audience members can direct their attention to certain performers and you know theoretically everyone in the scene is on stage at any given moment but of course it's video and it's uh, recording and it's very the camera's very close and there's a lot of ways that it mirrors film so it's this kind of strange in between somewhat live somewhat recorded somewhat theater somewhat film kind of world that's really in a lot of ways a new form of media yes yes and um i mean what a producer thing to have to just like teach yourself another thing that you only like that you knew some of but you have to make it happen the entire world the entire world has to become zoom pros now just to get by (laughs) it's kind of crazy would you say um i mean i guess this is through a class in this instance but as far as producing this play a second time would you say your goals as a producer have shifted for this second yeah i think i i primarily the goal for the reading was um as a writer for me to improve the play learn about the play and come up with a better draft as a writer um and then i think i've gotten to the point with this play where i've gotten a lot of feedback and a lot imagined a lot of ways that this play exists and the reason why i'm choosing to do this play in particular is because this is the play that i thought was kind of difficult to mount as a physical production yes. and a lot of it is this we had a conversation about this it has this kind of radio play energy to it with the um narration of the main character uh and reflecting on his memories from the past and so i thought that this form of doing somewhat it's going to be a lot of voiceover and we're going to have some visuals that aid the voiceover and then a lot of it is going the, the rest of it with the colonists is going to be occurring uh over zoom with video call and kind of have that futuristic vibe to it so I think, yeah, to go back to your question, the goal for this production is to create a piece of art that was from the from conception made for Zoom and for quarantine and for mm-hmm. you know, the mo- the modern, very, very modern audience. Um, yeah. 
whereas the goal for the reading was me to improve it as a writer. Yeah, that feels like a very smart and interesting shift in like the formats of how each is produced to serve the goal as well. Have you encountered, as you've dabbled in producing readings of works, any unexpected challenges that you've had to solve and navigate? Yeah, I think I think the, the hardest thing that I've found out about producing readings like this is finding your audience, figuring out who the audience is. And like, you know, for me, live theater isn't much without an audience. You yes, know? yeah. It's it's great it's great to create and learn from the other actors, but so much of from for of a reading for me of having a public reading is hearing the responses, reactions from the audience, getting feedback in that way. And so I think yeah, it's definitely hard to convince people to come to a reading of an unfinished play. Because yes. like, why don't I just wait until the production? Why don't I come to this? And yeah. I, I think it's great to reach out to fellow fellow artists who, uh, you know, there's there's a give and take. You say, if, you know, if you go to someone's reading, they'll probably come back and go to one of yours. Uh, and that's that's a nice relationship to foster. Brendan makes a great point here. This can extend beyond current friendships as well. Some questions to consider as you think about producing. What kind of art are you interested in making? Who is currently making art like that? Are you able to go and experience it? If you do, consider reaching out to the artist and naming what you appreciate about their work. In the future, you might be able to reach out to extend an invitation to one of your projects, including specific reasons they might be interested in this project, of course. And I think also, um, it's just really important to have, have a, like, here's what I want to get out of this. Mm-hmm. And have a clear set of, of goals for the reading so that people are just feeling like they're just like coming to hear a play. It's like, I want to hear this play um, and I want your feedback because I'm hoping to mount a production here or I'm hoping to submit it to X competition. Or yes, you know, if, you yeah. have, if people feel like there's a tangible goal related to the reading, at least in my experience, that they may be more likely to show up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that actually, I think, swings in well to a question I was going to ask you, which is, as you produce readings, um, what do you feel like are maybe three things that are non-negotiable for you? Like like aspects of the reading that I feel like need to be there? Yeah, and particularly from a producer brain. Okay, so yeah, I'd say definitely one an audience yeah i i would say and i know this is kind of um kind of ironic because it goes against what i've done in the past or maybe a little hypocritical but i do think it really helps if you have not only outside actors coming in but an outside director to Mm -hmm. guide your work Mm -hmm. and i i think i learned that through trying to of course now i'm directing my own play and i just directed the, the like <laughs> reading too but having had a few readings where someone else came in and directed it as much as the actors can give you as a playwright in terms of making decisions with the characters the directors can give you a lot in terms of just making you know minor decisions how, how close do people sit on stage what is mm-hmm. what are we going to do with lighting how is this you know scene going to transition into this scene um and you know, obviously not as many decisions as they will make if it eventually goes to full production. But even those small decisions, those decisions about pacing, delivery, relationships, characters, can give you a new lens as a playwright. I found. Yes. Um, so I think I'd say I'd say outside help, uh, and uh, separate from the actors, an audience, 
and then free food. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Extra draw, good for the artists involved. I mean, you raise a really interesting point with um, bringing in someone outside to direct, for say, as your example. Um, like, what are the boundaries when we're producing things for ourselves in terms of like, what do we really want to be involved in and want our hands in? And why are we producing this if we're the right. writer, which I feel like often someone's like writing or we're involved artistically, like you want to act in it if you're producing like whatever the thing is. But also, like you mentioned, where does it feel good to like pull back and maybe it's more helpful to not have your hand in a certain part of it. And the more that you can really just be a listener and not mm-hmm. have to worry about the all the you know tech elements, all the little minutia of the, of the performance of the reading itself, the more you can literally just be a consumer of your work and see how it hits you. That's, that's really helpful. You've had your hands in, in many different roles. Um, what what would you say is the biggest benefit to producing readings in particular versus a fully staged or filmed something? Well, I feel like the one of the things that makes theater as an art form different from filmmaking, from television, um, is that there's an opportunity to really hone a piece before you present it. Whereas, like, I feel like film is a lot more beholden to schedules and and massive, um, you know, companies, production houses, and not saying that, like, theater isn't still very commercial, it can be, but, you know, you look at at original musicals that make Broadway, and they had, you know, a decade of prep that went into making that musical, (laughs) and so there's, there's all this time that you have to hone the work, to work with the same people, new people, so I think one of the benefits of producing a reading... Um, is that you really do get to see your work as a piece of art and know that there is it's not the final version. So you can consume it and be like, great. And, you know, I, I don't know, but I always see a movie and I always think about, like, I love that movie, I wish they had done this, or I wish they had done that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would never say that to the person who made the movie because that would be <laughs> annoying. But it's kind of cool to be able to be a consumer of your own work before it's presented to anyone yes. officially. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, that the and that as a playwright... Being, you know, I, I I say this a lot, a bit of a cliche, but I don't think I've ever finished one of my plays because <laughs> I'm I, I write, I have a draft I'm happy with, and then yes. three years later I'm like, no, but there could be one more scene, or this character really could do this. <laughs> and so, as much as we are always, all all of our art is growing and changing, um, you know, every single time we go back to it, I think a reading is an important part of that journey. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning and you know I might maybe I'll go back and hold a reading of a play I wrote in fifth grade and see you know, <laughs> how much I've changed I, I, that could be a lot of fun so who knows <laughs> when you when you talk to folks about producing how do you describe that role and the work that goes into it yeah I would say as, as a student, as someone who's still very much uh, an aspiring theater artist, amateur in a lot of ways, for me, uh, hearing the word producer, I, I always think about money. I always think about, oh, they're the person who's funding this. They're the person who's making it happen. But I think, honestly, for, for me right now, working with a lot of student productions, with a lot of, um, you know, community theater, nonprofit world, uh, Honestly, the producer for me has taken on more of a role of just the person who has the idea and makes it happen and gets everyone organized together. And so 
you know, the person who sends that first email, like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And so, and, 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 and that means that they don't, often that person ends up then directing or doing something, but that doesn't always necessarily have to be the case. I know I've, like, gotten emails from people that are like, hey, I want this, you know, reading of this show to happen, and I'd, and I'd like you to direct it, and i like this person to do this, and then they just step back and they aren't involved. Mm-hmm. But they were the one who had the idea and sent out that email to make it happen. And so, you know, that's a very um, maybe naive, maybe, you know, student view of, of the producer role. But, yeah, I, I think uh, that's what it's been for me. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's naive at all. Um, I mean, I think there's something so interesting with the language of what being a producer is. And especially when you get to the Broadway level or you look at movies um, and TV um, there are so many different kinds of producers and sometimes it is someone who's just truly financially very generous and they right. like an idea and they're backing a project. But definitely when it comes to like the ground of producing, especially in theater and like small groups of people or individuals doing projects, um, it is a lot of stumbling upon ideas. Like I feel like that's a very lovely way to put it and bringing people together and forging these yeah. relationships just like you've described meeting actors, meeting folks in different spaces, bringing them together. Um and sometimes yes, like eventually it's talking to folks and asking them if they'll support projects financially, right. but on a different level <laughs> than yeah, that, that's one piece of the puzzle. And I mean, you look at the word producer and it's not, you know, it's not called a funder. It's not called, you know, the, it, it's it's the making it happen it's producing it in in the sense that it's just making it into something it's getting everyone into the room and saying you know being the puppeteer saying you do this you do this let's let's go let's do it exactly exactly have you assisted folks in producing shows or have you helped a friend bring a show to life it sounded like you may have in the way you were talking around yeah. things yeah i've um so we we have this uh this thing at uh, Germantown Friends School called Polyfest, uh, which is a um, a festival of student-written, student-produced work um, at the end of the year, uh, and it's always a little disorganized and a little crazy. But that's, I think, part of part of why people like to do it because there's less stigma. You know, you don't have to present a super polished thing. Of course. Um, and so I've, yeah, I've I've had a lot of people that have approached me with uh, ideas for things to perform at Polyfest or um, even at at open mic nights at mm-hmm. like these sorts of coffee house style events um and so they've been very much small scale let's do this let's get these people and do this monologue or this scene and make it happen you know just for this one performance um and yeah so i haven't been able to like assist as as a producer on like a larger scale multi-week or i guess some of them multiple weeks but like a, a you know full-on professional production sure but uh, yeah, I think as on, on the small scale, absolutely. Yeah. Would you, um, and this like may feel silly because you're talking to me, but would you talk to me about, I know that you recently did producing for the Philly Young Playwrights Quarantine Challenge. Oh yeah, that's it. That's a, I didn't even really think of that as, as producing, but I guess that is in, in a way. Um, yeah, so... I just ran a uh, quarantine playwriting challenge with Philly Young Playwrights that uh, was modeled after Paula Vogel's, modeled after Paula Vogel's uh, Bake Offs. Paula Vogel is an award-winning playwright. One thing she is known for is her writing exercise, a bake-off. 
Bake-offs are a writing exercise with two restrictions. The first, a list of five ingredients all playwrights must include in their scripts. The second, a time limit of 48 hours to write the play. Often, there is a communal play reading after the bake-off is complete. So we gave a list of five ingredients for everyone to include in their plays uh, and gave everyone 48 hours to write and submit. Uh, we had an Instagram that published all this information, write and submit their play. And then eventually we had a live-streamed reading of uh, our winning plays. Um, we got over 30 submissions. I think we got like 35 submissions um, from uh, students uh, from 5th grade all the way to 12th grade um, across the Philadelphia area. The ingredients for PYP's Quarantine Challenge Bake Off can be found on its Instagram, at PYP Quarantine Challenge. If you are interested in watching the performance of the winning plays, you can visit PYP's website at www.phillyyoungplaywrights.org slash quarantine hyphen challenge dot html. Um, and yeah, it was, it was really, really fun. And uh, it, I, I saw the reason why I did it is because I saw something going on on a national scale uh, that was more geared towards like college and professional playwrights, mm-hmm. um, a similar quarantine playwriting challenge. And I said, that's really cool. I want to do something like that for my community, for Philly, Philly young playwrights and uh, everyone, all the young playwrights in Philadelphia. Um, and yeah, so that, that, was a, that was a lot of fun. And I suppose insofar as I had the idea, sent out the emails and you know, brought people into the metaphorical room to make it happen, then I suppose I did I did produce that. It was really fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I would definitely say you were, like, a, a main producer in that, that it was, like, probably a, a, a co-and-co sort of thing, but that you were definitely leading the way with most, like, with the bulk of that administration. Yeah, I mean, and of, and of course, with, relied on the... Uh, the help of Philly and playwrights and the networks and the actors and all the readers. Uh, and so, yeah, it definitely, anything like that is going to have tons of people who need to be working to make it happen. This again, like probably sounds a little strange to like talk me through. To clarify, at this time, I was the associate director of education and program services at PYP and was one of the people Brendan reached out to with this idea. From idea to performance, Brendan led the way in the production of the Quarantine Challenge. I happily provided support in reading plays, recruiting and coordinating actors, and in acting. But you had this idea, which is cool because it comes back to what you were talking about in terms of like producing is like having an idea, reaching out to people, sending an email, and seeing if you could bring those people together in a room metaphorically or not, in the sense of of quarantine. Um, So you had this idea for the quarantine challenge. Then sort of what were the steps that you took to take it from being an idea to something that was happening? Well, yeah, so I I had the idea, uh, I want to run this competition, and then I thought, who are the people in my life uh, that would know how to run a playwriting competition? Um, And... I thought Philly Young Playwrights would be the right people to reach out to. And so I, I just proposed the idea. I was like, hey, here's what I want. Um, I'm really planning on, on doing this, making this happen. Uh, and I'd love to you know, slap the Philly Young Playwrights name onto it. Um, and any help that you guys would want to give would be awesome. Um, and then, yeah, the, the response was really enthusiastic. And it became um, a lot more of a collaborative effort, which I was so thrilled about um, that everyone had a 
what wanted to contribute and you know make this happen and it became bigger than i thought it was going to be um i thought it was just going to be like a bunch of my friends who were humoring me and writing a play for me and submitting, <laughs> but then we had you know all these all these people from around the city um who, who found out about it um yeah the power of social media uh yeah and so really it was just reaching out to people that i knew would be excited about it and then uh jumping off from there I mean, and that's, it's really, again, like, it's such a smart idea to um, think about, I mean, some of the things you're already talking about, like, who is my ideal audience, and based on who that audience is, then who might I want to reach out to to help make this thing happen? Um, I mean, then there was this beautiful team effort between you and Philly Young Playwrights in terms of getting the word out in multiple ways and like e-newsletter blasts. But you led the way in terms of collecting scripts and um, making sure that was read and the turnaround time that was happening, as well as um, like I know Young Playwrights assigned that actors, but you maneuvered the technology and you made sure that like the like the tech for what the theater world would have on that end, right. like you produced the quotes tech for for yeah. this like quarantine challenge as well. Um, and yeah, that turnaround I, time was fast. Right. I was gonna say I think from the initial email that I sent to actually ending and having the reading could like could not have been more than ten days. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> and, and going back to that point that you made about the, the audience too, I think that that's that's really what drives the producer role is having an idea and then having an idea of what you want the audience to be, who you're making this for. If you're making it, you know, if it's in the, in the sense of like a, a larger scale Broadway show, who's going to want to see this play? If it's in the sense of like a playwriting competition, who mm-hmm. is going to want to submit to this and who would be interested in hearing the readings um, and, and making it tailoring the whole process to those people, those eventual consumers. I think that that's an, that's an interesting and important part of the whole process. <sighs> You've done so much work with and through MacGuffin. Have you ever helped sort of produce shows you guys have worked on there? But I know you kind of have because you brought your play to the space. So that kind of stuff is happening. Yeah. So they um, they have a very like organized uh, yearly calendar. Um, um, yeah. So in terms of like uh, bringing new ideas there, I, I sent... Um, Oh, so, so that we have this uh, for seniors to honor seniors. They That's have what a I was senior wondering. Concert series, yeah, and that is something that is um, a tradition. Yes, like every every year, uh, the seniors who've been there for a while mount these productions, um, and MacGuffin provides the space and a lot, and the MacGuffin teachers, John Ray and Liz Verdet and others, um, provide like guidance. But in terms of curating the set list and and going through making the show that's, that's what uh, i was really wondering seniors and so in yeah in a lot of ways that sets up people to be a producer in in a sense that that may not even realize they're producing anything because they're they're told to create this show mm-hmm. you know how are you going to celebrate your time at mcguffin what songs are you going to sing what exactly. scenes are you going to perform um and so yeah in, in terms of, of curating the show and thinking about both what will celebrate your time there and what audiences would, would want to see, um, then yes, I think that that's an example. Yeah, I was wondering about that specifically, if the Senior Showcase sort of was like a thing you all collaboratively would have ended up producing. And did, you had to... I'm trying to think back. Um, 
that was that that was in February. Uh, yes, the um, performance was yeah the end of February. That's right. Okay, cool. I remember that I was out of state, but I was trying to remember if it was forced to go virtual or not. In which case, it no, wasn't, um, which is good. It was not, which, which <laughs> we were all actually. We were thinking, we were th- talking about this a lot with our spring show going virtual. We were like, we're so glad we got the senior concert in right under the wire because oh. that that would have been really tough to not not have that. Um, yeah, so uh, we we actually also I had to work with two other uh, actors because we our senior class is such a massive graduating class. Um, in the spring show alone, we had nine seniors in the class um, in the show. And so we had an interesting challenge. Usually the senior concerts were a celebration of like one individual, but we had to do um, three per show. And so we had to find a way how to like group make this a set list that both celebrated us individually, had some things we did together, and then still felt like a coherent piece overall. Yeah. Oh, the interest It's like the interesting challenges that pop up. Um, is there anything for you as you've as you've um, begun producing readings that you would say is like a challenge that you wouldn't have expected? Like something that folks don't think about, but if they were going to produce a reading, maybe they should take it into consideration. Yeah, I would say um, don't underestimate the uh, importance of working out the tech elements of it. Uh, and when I when I say that, I don't just mean like lighting and sound. I mean like literally blocking who are, are, what are the chairs going to look like? What's the setup going to look like? If it's a staged reading, um, really make sure that the actors know where they're going and when. Um, and I, I think honestly, the one specific thing that you may feel kind of mundane, but when you have someone reading stage directions really clarify what are the stage directions you want them to read and Mm -hmm. what are the ones you want the actors to perform because i've had a bunch of readings (laughs) where i'll have like a a line that says like um you know quietly and like for me i think that's clear that the actor should just read the word quietly and be like okay i'll say this line quietly but often i'll have these people who are reading stage directions come in there and be like oh read quietly like fine yes now the actor will go ahead and read it quietly but so i think just having a if it's a way in your script to be like some ones are like i've started doing all the ones that are like only for actors and will not be read aloud in a reading i put those Mm -hmm. in parentheses and then had everyone every other one not in parentheses if you want to be in formatting or if you want to just sit down with the stage direction person and be like circle these are the ones you're reading these are the ones you aren't Mm -hmm. just because in terms of like hearing the flow of the play and having it you know go as smoothly as possible those like really little details about who's reading what when are they reading it they can add up and it can feel kind of clunky if you don't smooth it out beforehand yes yeah as you've begun doing more and more producing how has producing theater affected the other ways you make theater i think yeah i I mean i think as a theater artist every time you put on a different hat it changes how you do everything else and so I definitely find that getting really into playwriting these last few years has changed me as an actor um, and has changed the way I sit down and analyze a script. Because instead of just thinking about my individual motivations to the scene, I think about the structure of the scene as a whole, the pacing of a scene as a whole, and yes. the purpose it serves in the greater play. 
um, which, you know, admittedly sometimes muddles my thinking and I'd be like, no, stop worrying about that. Just go back, just, you know, play your beats, play your actionable <laughs> verbs, all those things. Like, it's a lot to think about. Um, For actors, beats refer to the playable or actionable moments in a script. Whenever something happens, whether it's an event or a piece of dialogue that might change how the character is thinking or how the character might go after their goal, that is a new playable beat for an actor. Beats can also refer to pauses in the dialogue, though Brendan is referring to the former. But I do think it it helps. And like I was in a production of Hamlet last year, and I was thinking about this. I was like, I'm so glad I am doing this play now, having, you know, obviously I've, I've, I'm still a I'm 18 years old. I have only been writing plays for a few years, but the fact that I had I had done that play after I'd written a few plays, I was like, I feel like I can really analyze this scene so much better because I know how it fits in the greater play yes, rather than just yeah. looking at it from an actor's point of view as like, what does my character want? What is happening in the scene? So yeah, I think that that certainly uh, changes. And then as far as <clears throat> as uh, producing. How does that change my my roles? Uh, I th I think really it just has showed me that you know no piece of theater is is too small. Like you can make theater anywhere, anytime, with any budget. It can happen. You can find you know if you want to stage something in your living room and invite your neighbors over to hear you read a monologue or something. That's theater. If you want to go and and try to you know have a, uh, a performance in your English class and, and you know, perform a scene for, for uh, everyone else and that's your final project, you know, that's a form of theater. There's your audience. That's still theater. Like, it, it's as much of a social force as it is a commercial artistic endeavor. And so it can exist really anywhere. And I think that that's kind of changed as I've started to produce things on a smaller scale. Yes, yeah, definitely. Do you, and I, um, so you are going to college next year. Yes, I am. Well, probably. In some form <laughs> some, of so, something. In some form. Zoom University, <laughs> An update. Brendan decided to take a gap year because he didn't think he'd be able to get the kind of theater education and experience that he was looking for in college in a virtual format. This year, they have been spending his time tutoring kids in remote school and doing two remote theater jobs. The first, an artistic internship with Theater Exile in Philadelphia, working for their customer relations and literary departments. The second, Brendan is working for Philly Young Playwrights as their social media and communications manager. Additionally, he is the playwright in residence at PYP this year, where Brendan will receive mentorship as they develop a new play. This new play will receive a public reading in the spring of 2021 with a cast of Temple University actors. Do you foresee yourself continuing to produce things? And if so, what kind of work do you feel like you're drawn to generally to producing? Uh, I, I absolutely do. And I think um, as much as I want to continue uh, playwriting, working with that and trying to um, you know, get some of my plays mounted and Mm -hmm. um, do that in college. I also am really, really interested um, in uh, devised theater and mm -hmm. um, immersive theater, site-specific theater, any of those types of theater that uh, kind of break the grounds between performer and audience or, or blur the lines. Um, A quick debrief on these three kinds of theater. 
Devised theater is a method of making theater in which a group of people collaborate to design a performance from top to bottom. Some devised theater processes result in scripts, some do not. The process of creation often includes a lot of improvisation, though the process of creation can look different for every group of collaborators. Site-specific theater refers to a production of theater that does not take place at a standard theater or theatrical place, but instead takes place at a location chosen to enhance the audience's experience of the play. Immersive theater tries to remove the fourth wall between performers and audience members. Frequently, immersive theater is also site-specific. In immersive theater, audience members often have the opportunity to interact with the actors and with their surrounding environment. And so I really... I, I just, I mean, earlier this year I saw Sleep No More um, in New York, which is amazing, and I should have seen it sooner, but um, looking at that and looking at the way that you can use spaces and the way that you can use um, the audience as characters in your performance, mm -hmm. that was super, super inspiring to me. And thinking about, I was also even thinking about um, these kinds of, like, scavenger hunts through a city and how those are really a form of theater too yes, and how yeah. you can even I, I am really kind of obsessed with the idea right now of having people fall into pieces of theater without even realizing it like mm -hmm. staging something in in a city that is just occurring as a piece of public art like almost like graffiti that's just there and then people stumble into it and see what's happening and they can become a, a character in this performance without even realizing they're doing that like that any any kind of like theater that breaks the ground that breaks the wall between traditional audience pays for ticket goes and experiences a show happening on stage anything that kind of takes the world of theater and puts it in a new context that's the kind of stuff that i'm really getting excited about that's really cool i um want to make sure we end close to on time are there any other last thoughts you have in terms of producing readings or pieces of advice you'd like to offer yeah i guess i'd just say do it and oh, I, I think the, the one more thing I'd, I'd say is that as a playwright, setting a date for a reading is one of the greatest external motivators you can ever get because mm. it's it's hard sometimes to, you know, no matter how much you love writing, to actually find the time to sit down and do it, you know, to get that first sentence on on page or on computer. Yes, um, definitely. Is really hard, and if you have, I know for me, I, I like to have people that are holding me accountable to do things and if I know that I'm doing it not just for myself but for another person like I have to write this play for Brittany because she's going to read it at this date then it'll, it'll get done that's you know a lot more likely for it to actually happen so if you set that reading and you start inviting people and asking actors to be a part of it and you haven't completed that draft yet and the reading's a month away I think the draft will find a way of getting completed by the, by the reading because you mm -hmm. know you need to have something to share and so as much as it can serve as an event in itself, just the existence of a reading can be a, a, a helpful boost to a playwright who needs some, uh, a, you know, kick in the butt to finish their play. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Brendan. Thank you. This was awesome. I'm, I can only imagine what our conversation would look like in two years or four years. I'm really excited to see the things yeah, you get up to. I'd probably, I'd probably look back at this and, and cringe and think, oh, you're oh, so no. full, full of yourself. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not at all. No. That was Brendan Dahl. I am Brittany Brewer. This is No Small Parts. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. 
You can find No Small Parts on Facebook at No Small Parts Podcast, Instagram at No Small Parts Podcast, and Twitter at No Small Parts Pod. For more No Small Parts, visit our website at www.nosmallpartspodcast.com. Thank you.